It's, it's great to have such an amazing support from our community here. Yeah, it's truly remarkable to see that so many people are really engaged with what we're doing and we just hope to keep building on that and now hopefully we can stay on the people forefront of their minds and then when we do reopen they hopefully come straight back to both our restaurants. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. In hospitality, the light is often shone on those at the peak of their craft, making waves or creating new culinary paths. There's always discussion about the next generation, nurturing and career paths and what may unfold in years to come. What does the next generation have in store for the Australian culinary landscape? Peter Bozer is the senior sous chef at Laura Point Leo Estate in Victoria. Peter, how are you? Very well. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to have you on the show. You've been in the limelight a bit recently, but part of this sort of next generation that will make their mark in the next decade or so. How does it feel to be sort of um, put in that category and had to have a bit of light shine on you? Um, yeah, like, I mean, it's a funny, uh, it's a funny concept. I do not at all feel like, uh, there's a limelight shot of me. I can still go to the supermarket fairly unrecognized. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's funny to, um, to be put in that category amongst some of the amazing chefs that we have in, um, in Victoria. It's, uh, yeah, it's truly an honor to be a part of it. it it's been a, a pretty interesting couple of years, but it's spring and summer's coming. What's it feel like? working in the industry at the moment is, is there more optimism given what's happened in the last couple of years um yes obviously for the whole industry the last couple of years have been very tough um at the moment for us in um, at point leo estate we uh, even after the last lockdown we had another blow um with a big fire a couple months ago uh, which uh, put us out of business. It uh, felt that every single time we sort of started getting a little bit of momentum going, we um, it was just cut short by either another lockdown or in this case, a fire. So that was a bit tough, but now we're coming towards the end of it and um, we hope to be back open before the end of the year. And um, yeah, the future is looking bright and we've been certainly busy in the meantime as well. So yeah, it's uh, only good things ahead. Yeah, being a, a two-hat regional restaurant, um, the challenges have been immense in the last two years, but the fire is something else. Take take us back to that time. Um, and and this, do you have a story of sort of where you were and, and what unfolded? Uh, yeah, well, I was uh, doing my Friday night dinner service in Laura with a restaurant full of people. That's uh, that's where we were at the point of the fire, at the point in time. Um, yeah, we had um, about 150 patrons on site in both restaurants and um, an electrical fire beyond our control happened in, um, in one of the canopies, um, the exhaust fans on top of the roof, um, which uh, spread rather quick. Um, and thank God we um, evacuated the building very quick. Um, everybody came out unharmed and, yeah, that was... Uh, it, it's for a half an hour fire. The damage is uh, is very big. It uh, it didn't seem at the time to have such an impact. I mean, we were standing outside thinking, oh, you know, this will probably be a week or two where we can't work. And yeah, the damage was a bit larger than we expected at the time. But yeah, how did you feel at the time? Um, it was such an intense experience. Um, yeah, it was pretty surreal to be honest. Um, at the time, you just sort of look around and. 
when you first hear the smoke alarm go off, you just think to yourself, well, you know, did somebody burn something in a pan or is something going wrong somewhere? And can somebody please switch that alarm off? I'm cooking here. Um, but then when you sort of realize that it's a little bit more than just that, then yeah, you just sort of switch into the mode of, all right, what are the procedures in place? And thank God our entire senior management team has really switched on. Um, even a couple of days after the fact from the fire brigade, we got nothing but praise on how we handle the situation in terms of evacuating, um, getting all the proper people involved in terms of fire brigade and whatnot, getting everyone on site, um, taking care of all the patrons. And yeah, you just sort of slick slip into the next mode and try and get everyone out safe and thank God that happened. You're not unfamiliar with um, having to have time off and different working conditions with given um, COVID and the experiences of that, but what's these last couple of months been like since the fire for you? Um, well, very interesting actually, because um, I think it was day two after the fire where we got an email going out to the entire senior management team of, all right, well, what's happened, happened. Let's move forward. Let's think about what we can do and let's fill the coming period in as meaningful as possible. So we straight away put our heads together, came up with a concept of a pavilion. Um, at the time, we were thinking, you know, a pop-up restaurant or doing something off-site and what, what would something like that look like? Um, and we all came together and came up with this concept of what now is the Point Leo Pavilion. It's um, a bit of a hybrid between both restaurants we have on-site, um, but it's its own creation, its own identity uh, with a shared menu between guests. It's fairly approachable. Um, we do two and three courses during the week and on the weekend, three courses only. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been very well received by our community who has always supported us through whatever was thrown at us, but that was obviously not ready overnight. So there was a three month period between the fire and the opening of the pavilion. And that time we just tried to fill as much with, um, things that we otherwise never get a chance to do. So. As a kitchen brigade, we went out to lots of local suppliers, um, lots of uh, farmers, chocolate factories. Uh, we went at 4 a.m. to clam seafood to go to the fish market, um, things that we always wanted to do but never have a chance to because of time. Um, the front of the house had extensive wine training, which normally is obviously a course that would cost thousands of dollars, but we were lucky enough to do all that training in-house. And yeah, we um, even did a little bit of community work uh, with a local non-for-profit cafe where we helped them during a bit of a lull in their business. Um, so yeah, we tried to fill the time as meaningful as possible, which I think we uh, we did quite well. Well, I want to explore what you are doing there and, and sort of what you have planned um, for the next couple of years as well. But take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? Um, well, in my family, it wasn't that much of a role, to be honest. I come from a family where, um, I mean, my brother and I were two years apart and my parents just started their own business. So growing up, food was more fuel and make sure mum has something on the table at six o'clock because we're going to soccer practice and we're running around. And yeah, it was not really, uh, we, weren't, we weren't really adventuring culinary wise. Um, and then I think when I was about 12 years old, um, 
I want a new pair of soccer boots. And my dad said the pair I bought for you half a year ago are just fine. So if you want some, then you're going to have to go and find a job. So I um, went out and found a job as a kitchen hand in a local restaurant, um, which turned out was a two Michelin star restaurant, which didn't mean much to me at the time, but I heard it was a good place. So I thought I'd just go there. Um, and yeah, that's sort of where it started. Well, take us back into that kitchen. Um, where was it and what were they were doing? What were they doing and what sort of impact did that role have on you? So, yeah, they are um, a two mission star restaurant called the Cromart Hung in uh, the south of Holland near the Belgian border, just about five minutes from where I grew up. And I just wanted to work a bit on Fridays and Saturday nights, a couple of hours washing dishes and <laughs> walking into a kitchen like that with so many young chefs, 24-year-old, 25-year-olds who all looked really cool, yelling and shouting at each other and making these amazing creations for a young kid that's just, you're in another world. And um, that was probably the moment I realised I want to be one of those guys. Tell us a bit about those early years when you started carving out a career as a chef. What were the real sort of um, integral moments for you in Holland? Yeah, so um, our schooling system is slightly different to what is here in Australia. Um, So at the age of 12, 13, and you go to middle school, you can actually choose um, a profession you're interested in and start going to a culinary school where you do two days a week of kitchen kitchen training and front of house training. And then um, the other three days a week, you just uh, learn all your maths and English and all those subjects. Um, and then, yeah, when going to culinary school at the age of 13, 14, I think I was, learning more about the craft as it is and um, still working in the same restaurant, moved on from washing the dishes to washing the salad. Um, was, um, yeah, it was great. And then at that time, I think I sort of formed an idea of where I wanted to go with my career. And I was fortunate enough to work with um, some great chefs who taught me a lot at the time. I mean, I remember when um, I uh, I wanted to move on from washing the dishes and wanted to work a bit more in the kitchen. And they told me, you know what, if you're a bad kitchen hand, you can never be a good chef. If your area is not tidy, then you'll never be a tidy chef either. So go back in there, clean up the mess and then come back. So these sorts of small lessons, um, yeah, really stuck to me. So yeah, there was uh, it was an interesting period. Very hard work, but I loved every minute of it. Tell us about your time over in Europe. What what was kind of the real sort of integral um, mentor that you you had during that time? Yeah, so when uh, a little bit further down the track, uh, when I finished my culinary degree um, at the age of eighteen, started working in Belgium at um, Hof and Cleve, um, three Michelin star restaurant by. Peter Gosens, and that was um, just another level of um, culinary um, excellence, I would say. They um, strive for nothing less than this. It's um, about a 16 to 18 people kitchen crew for about 30 guests. Um, It's an insane um, environment to work in. Every morning you come in at 7 o'clock and you put on your work boots and you start running till about midnight, no breaks, no lunches, no nothing, just hard work. Um, And the beauty about their system, and I really love this, was um, when I came to them for a job, 
they said they have a system of um, a commie slash chef the party two month period, which means that you can work there for two years and you start off, say, in the larder section as a commie for two months. Then you move on, chef the party larder for two months. And then after those two months, you move to the meat section for two months, first as a commie and then two more months as a chef of the party. And they say in two years' time, which is probably as long as you would realistically want to work here, that you can see the entire kitchen. And I did that, and it was great. And I think it's a, it's a brilliant system because they also know with the hours they work and the climate it's in, and um, people don't tend to stick around in those types of restaurants for years and years and years. So they say, this is make a commitment to us for two years, and we make a commitment to you of teaching you every element of our kitchen. Are, are there any dishes from that period of time that you remember that kind of speak of the sort of food that you were learning to cook? Uh, yeah, it was a pretty traditional French cuisine um, with uh, a very high detail on just local produce. I remember one of the amuse, which was a um, tartare of a local Wagyu supplier with a um, seaweed broth and different types of um, local mushrooms. Um, we just served as a little amuse. I mean, when I say a couple varieties of mushrooms, I think it was a two-bite snack with about 14 different mushrooms in it. Um, it was very highly technical and skillful food, but it was, uh, yeah, flavors were blowing your mind every day. How did you end up in Australia? Um, well, after those two years in Belgium, I um, weighed about 30 kilos less than I did now. Um, the only thing that had a bit of weight left were the bags under my eyes. Um, so I said, all right, I need a little break. Went for traveling, um, did a bit of traveling around in South America. I just disconnected from the whole cooking altogether just for a couple months, just to clear my mind. And that was great. I can highly recommend it to anyone. And I met a bunch of people and I thought, okay, now this is over. I'm going back to Holland and now I'm going to find a good job and start my serious life. And I think I was five weeks back in, five weeks back in Holland and I looked around and I thought, no, let's keep going. So I um, bought a one-way ticket to Melbourne, thought about um, going here for about six months in Melbourne and then maybe another six months of traveling around and going from Sydney up north and then go back afterwards. But, yeah, that's uh, that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the attraction to, to go to Melbourne with a one-way ticket? Uh, I met a couple of Australians um, overseas while travelling and they always said you should come around and we have lots of really good restaurants and they showed me some of um, the things that at the time, what was the food scene like here? And that was very appealing to me. Tell us about when you did arrive. What did you think of the, the restaurant offering in the industry when you first got here? Um, I think it was a very diverse cuisine. I think it still is. I think Melbourne is one of the most diverse cities food-wise in the world. You can get um, world-class Vietnamese food. You can get some of the best Italian in the world. You can get anything from anywhere in the world. If there's a top cuisine somewhere, it's also in Melbourne. Um, the only thing I did find very surprising was that I thought that there were maybe only four types of fishes in this whole country because every menu would feature the same fish. 
I was looking around and when I arrived, I think it was the salmon area where the salmon era where just everybody had a salmon fillet on the menu and then that sort of died out and then everybody was doing barramundi. And I thought there's, you're a big island in the middle of the ocean. I'm sure there's more in there. Whereabouts did you end up uh, landing work-wise in Australia? So I started through this friend of mine who I knew who hooked me up with a casual job in a cafe in, uh, in Brighton. Um, and I just worked there a couple hours a week just for some cash. And, um, then after that, their head chef left. And as it goes in hospitality, you, uh, get given an apron and good luck. You have a promotion. You're the head chef now, which, uh, which happened to me. And then, um, from there, I, um, met my partner who, um, who I'm still with to today. And, um, we, uh, yeah, that was probably the moment in time where I started thinking a little bit more long-term and seeing maybe Melbourne as more of a realistic place for the future. Um, and the restaurant uh, was keen to keep me. So they offered me a sponsorship and um, we get that ball rolling. And then, yeah, just uh, went through that process. What was it like at such a young age um, being a head chef for you? Um, yeah, I was 21 years old when I got my first head chef gig, which was probably way too young looking back on it. Um, it was, it was difficult. It was, um, uh, I think the problems that come up were things that I always worked in kitchens where people were dying to work there. And the place in Belgium where I worked, they had about 40,000 job applications a year for about 18 positions. And now all of a sudden you're also working with people who are here just for a visa or who are students or who actually don't want to work. And then to take a step back and be the person to motivate these people was pretty hard. And especially because I have such a different mentality. And that was a really steep learning curve for me to uh to go through that i think uh the way that i was brought up in the culinary system was you know he cracked a whip and my way or the highway and apparently that does not work anymore so that's uh, i had to learn that one the hard way you spent a bit of time um with the lads at three blue ducks um very very different to the michelin star training that you'd had um do you have any stories of what it was like to to work with you those guys in the um, restaurant in melbourne yeah definitely um i um heard of their project that they were setting up a couple of months before they uh, they actually started doing it at uh, tullamarine they have a brand new restaurant there at the urban surf park um, and they were building a big brand new kitchen and restaurant there on site. And they, um, yeah, had me involved in helping it, helping them set it up. So I worked closely with, um, mainly Mark LeBroy and Andy Allen in, uh, in getting that up and running. And it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. We started, I first came to the venue about three months before opening and, um, had a look at an empty shell and then all the equipment was starting to get delivered and, it was sort of Christmas for chefs, really, uh, unpacking uh, thousands of, well, hundreds of thousand dollars worth of equipment. And uh, yeah, it was Christmas for chefs at the time. Um, but then because of a small lockdown that happened just before the reopening, um, we actually lost about 85% of all the kitchen staff they had hired previously. 
So I think it was about four days before opening when I got given a list from head office saying, all right, these are the guys that have signed up with us months ago. Um, maybe it's good to touch base if they're still coming for their introduction. And yeah, 85% dropped out. So I was like, okay, we're going to open a restaurant in four days from now. And I have no one here. Let's uh, let's jump on Seek and uh, start sending some emails. So I think we scrambled together a, a team in, uh, in a couple of days and that was uh, – stressful but at the same time um, another learning curve and a very uh a very fun time really hard work um but yes a lot of uh, a lot of fun and they're a great group to work for such lovely people very down-to-earth kind of guys and yeah great uh, great to work for did their style of cookery have an impact on on you and, and your approach um, a little bit. I mean, they um, obviously have a slightly more simple approach to what uh, what their dishes are like, but every single thing they do is just packed with flavour. Everything is just very full of spices, herbs, fresh produce, um, which, I mean, at the end of the day is the base of every good dish is good produce and lots of flavour. So, so that respect, they did really look for those top ingredients and to really pack as much flavor in there as I can. So, yeah, that was uh, really nice. Laura's had a pretty interesting life as a restaurant through really challenging times. Um, take it, take us into the kitchen there and tell us a bit about the food and the, the offering and, and what you guys are doing there. Yeah, so, I mean, Laura obviously um, – is the is the fine dining restaurant of Point Leo Estate where we seat about forty guests uh, for service, next to our bigger bistro, which is slightly more approachable. It's our one hat restaurant, um, and yeah, Laura is. Um, well, I think the good food guide described it very well when they say it's uh, it's like when you go on a plane and you turn left. Um, that's a pretty accurate description of what Laura is. It's, uh, we try to bring as much luxury as possible to, um, to what it can be. And that goes from the crockery to the food, to the produce we use, to, um, the multi-million dollar sculpture park that's right in front of the window. And, um, yeah, our food, we try to focus as much as possible on local produce, local suppliers, um where we have such a great relationship the peninsula is truly amazing i was aware that it was a beautiful area but it was not until moving here that i really got to see all these little little farms in little pockets of the peninsula that just produce world-class ingredients um and because it's such a small area we have such a good relationship with them so Nine times out of ten, you just jump in the car and you go pick up some olive oil from here or you go pick up some strawberries from there or the figs and, yeah, they can be uh, on your plate at lunchtime and that's that's all what we, uh, that's what we're thriving, thriving to do. Commercial kitchens have such a fascinating hierarchy um, of chefs. T- tell us a little bit about the role of a senior sous chef and how they fit into the equation of a kitchen. Yeah, so I mean, I work under uh, Joseph Espuga, our culinary director. He um, he is great. He uh, is sort of the mentor who oversees the entire operation at Point Leo Estate. And then um, as a senior sous chef, you sort of work more um, the day-to-day operation in Laura. So in terms of I come in in the morning, I 
prep with the other guys and girls in the team and make sure that we're all ready. I do the ordering and make sure that every section in the kitchen is organized and ready for service at um, 12 o'clock. And um, in terms of menu development, we work closely together. It can be Joseph and I coming up with ideas together or him coming up with ideas and then it's mainly up to me to just trial and error a bunch of recipes um, until we have it perfect and then we move on from there. What is it about Australia that kept you here this all this time? Uh, I mean, my partner would kill me if I said there was anything else in her. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to say my partner. Uh, no, like, yeah, a combination of my partner, the job opportunities here. Um, it's, uh, it's a great country to be in. It's... Um, yeah, it's all around. It's very well organised. It's um, yeah, it's a great place to live. Uh, you're a bit humble at the beginning, but you were recognised recently as part of this next generation that we expect to make waves in the next decade. But what, what does that feel like, and where do you see yourself going in the next sort of five to ten years? Um, yeah, so it was a couple months ago where uh, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, um, they had their 30th birthday. So as a um, celebration, they did a 30 under 30 chefs in um, in Victoria and they asked me to be a part of it and be one of the chefs, which is yeah, truly an honour to be uh, to be amongst that. Um, it's still pretty surreal. I don't see myself as a, an industry leader just quite yet. So to be put amongst people who I do consider those types of people, like you got your Hugh Allen, your Rasheen Cowles, um, Zachary First. I mean, the names are endless. Um, all these great guys and girls who are doing amazing things in hospitality. And I mean, I hope to just keep doing what I'm doing for now, get um, get better. And I mean, we'll see what the future will bring. I never had too much of a career planned out for myself. I think if I told... Um, 18-year-old Peter that he'd be living in the Mornington Peninsula in a couple of years from now, he would uh, probably not believe it. So, yeah, I just see what comes my way and I hope um, I hope to be a part of uh, the industry for a long time and keep thriving. Well, you certainly had your challenges um, there in uh, at Laura at um, Point Leo Estate with the with COVID and the and the fires, but um, with the pavilion being launched and the restaurant reopening soon, um, what's what's the summer looking like for you guys? Um, yeah, well, we have the pavilion um, open till the end of the year, and we uh, aim to open just before the end of the year. Um, so it looks like we got uh, a very busy period ahead of us. Now it's going to start shifting the focus a little bit onto what this reopening will look like exactly. Um, uh, we still look for a million staff members, such as every other restaurant in the, in the country. Um, so that's definitely something we need to focus on, hire more staff and find, um, find out exactly what's, uh, how this new, uh, Point Leo and new Laura is going to look when we, uh, when we do reopen and for the time being, the pavilion is nice. It's
Well, um, you're doing amazing things uh, down there. What, what do you love about what you do? Um, I mean, working for Point Leo Estate is amazing. It's such a beautiful workplace. Um, it's, it's very diverse. I mean, I'm in my little Laura bubble where we have about five chefs working for just a small portion of guests. But right next door, there is a, a big bistro where we seat up to 150 guests for a day. And then we have the terrace area where people who come to the sculpture park can come in for a quick bite to eat or a bit of lounging. Um, so you're a, you're a very small team in a, in part of a bigger team. And that's, that's really nice to work in, um, and being surrounded by so many amazing staff members. Um, I mean, I already spoke about Joseph, who is our culinary director and yeah, leads the, leads the team forward on, on all angles, but even other people like, uh, working with Marie Sanderson, our pastry chef, who does the most amazing desserts, which that's not particularly my strong suit, but I can definitely learn from somebody like that, certain techniques, certain dishes that she makes, or even some of the other guys in the kitchen, Aditya, who is one of our uh, senior uh, chef, the parties in the, in the bistro who, uh, who's from Indian heritage makes curries for staff meal. That will absolutely not be out of place in any had it restaurant in Melbourne. Um, working amongst people like that just um, makes my life a lot easier and, yeah, very happy. Well, Peter, it's amazing to catch up with you and look forward to seeing what uh, unfolds in the next couple of years for you. Uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.